0: The end is near. Wait, no, the end is actually not near for oil or for that matter, for natural gas. And frankly, we need to stop pretending it is. It is leading to really, unfortunately, the risk of unfortunate energy policy in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. It's leading investors to question what is the viability of the sector going forward. We are going to be needing a whole bunch of oil and natural gas. Ideally, from the United States and Canada uh, to help meet the rest of the world's energy needs. We need to stop pretending that that is going away. The the numbers are overwhelming. So, why now? This is actually going to be week four of me either doing a video or writing about the inevitability of oil demand growth, at least for the next decade or so. And frankly, I think it's going to be much longer than that. We're finally getting through the pre COVID levels. And I think that's why you're seeing myself and I think some others talk more about demand from. The fourth quarter of 2021 to the first quarter of 2023, we were plus or minus that 100 million barrel a day oil demand level that we were at pre-COVID. It's really only here in the back half of the year and as we look at 2024 that we're kind of definitively shooting through uh, to 102, 103, 104 million barrels of oil, oil demand, again, above that 100 million barrel a day pre-COVID level. And of course, there's been a lot of ink written Uh, by a bunch of different people, and I'll get into that on the next slide, that either 2019 was the peak for oil demand or that somewhere here in the mid-2020s, we were going to have a peak. And we're reaching all-time highs at a time, the three largest oil-consuming regions, the United States, Europe, and China, at best have uncertain economic outlooks none are in sort of booming GDP mode. We can debate whether any are in recession or hard landing or soft landing or all these things, but no one's debating, hey, it's booming growth. Yet oil demand is on track and is making all time record highs. And frankly, there actually isn't an end in sight to that, at least not for the foreseeable future. And we need to recognize that. And we need to start incorporating that into how we view the world. So again, it's been a month of this. The pushback, honestly, it's been kind of lame. Uh, maybe I'm used to being a Goldman analyst where you put out a report and you know you have a whole bunch of people disagree with you and it'd be a real intense sort of back and forth. Maybe that's not the nature of what I'm doing now. But the pushback I have gotten, um, it's done. Not, it is actually I find it, if anything, reinforcing that I've not gotten that analytical sort of critique of the view. And I'm going to go into that in the next slide. So we'll, we'll wait for that. Look, when you look at the other 7 billion people on earth. Their energy needs are massive. It is a hierarchy of needs, 24-7, 365 is your first and foremost objective, but you do care about geopolitical security, you do care about affordability, and ideally it leads to cleaner air, cleaner water, and perhaps lower carbon intensity, but it is going to require all forms of energy. On the one hand, I think oil demand growth is inevitable here, but there's actually, I think, not a great chance That the rest of the world can get to Western world standards of living, which is inevitable. We can debate whether it's 10 years from now or 90 years from now, but it is inevitable uh, that they could do it just with fossil fuels. We're going to need a whole bunch of the new stuff. It better scale up, it better work, uh, which is why we focus on all forms of energy. Let's stop pretending we're going to be using less of the traditional stuff. And let's continue to focus on how do we motivate, how do we incentivize, how do we scale up the newer stuff that is compatible with improving rest of world living standards. So let me talk a little bit about the pushback we've received so far. And the first one is, hey, Arjun, why can't you imagine a new energy future? Let me just say, I think for the 1.4 billion people in Africa, the 1.4 billion people in India, the 1.4 billion in China, and in the rest of Southeast Asia, all those 1.4 billion people buckets, they should not be forced to use imaginary energy. Uh, They should get to use actual energy. And that is going to be a whole bunch of oil, natural gas, probably coal. And as I've said now many times, we're going to need the new stuff to ramp up as well. It's not about imagination. It is actually about analysis. It's about economics. It's about scaling up. It's about what works, what doesn't work. It's about your geopolitical supply-demand balances. It's about all these things. It's not about imagination. Number two pushback. Hey, India skipped landlines and went, to, went to, straight to cell phones. Uh, don't you think uh, these uh, developing countries should skip fossil fuels and go straight to renewables? This is really, uh, you know, it, it is one of the more ridiculous memes that are out there. It's Why am I even spending time talking about this? Because they actually get this pushback. And what kind of is shocking, it's one thing for folks from the environmental community to talk about this. I, I As I've said, I actually have very little issue with environmentalists who are advocating for what they truly believe in. We need them in the world to help clean up the air, clean up the water, to care about biodiversity. They have a role to play. The issue is with everyone else who listens and then enacts those policies. This is where pragmatism and common sense is lost. And this is one of the worst memes out there. And it comes, I've heard it, from people who know better about commodity markets. not some environmentalist. it's from a commodities person. It's from Wall Street people. It's a ridiculous meme. Cell phones are consumer products. They cost a couple hundred dollars to a thousand. A, a mobile phone, a smartphone is infinitely better than landline. You don't need all the infrastructure and you get to browse the internet on it. <laughs> you don't get to do that with a landline. So, of course, you're going to skip landlines if you're India. No one's saying you're going back to old technology when it comes to consumer technologies. That is very different than physical energy infrastructure. And I don't even know why this is even a question, but I get this pushback enough. Uh, this is not a good pushback, folks. You can push back on any of my analysis. This is, this is a poor example. Number three pushback, Arjun you are biased towards fossil fuel companies based on your history of Wall Street of covering them or on your current affiliation. Let me just address this for a second. So for the first 22 years of my career as a Wall Street analyst, yes, I covered mostly, but not entirely, but mostly traditional oil and gas, integrated oil, EMP, some refiners. I covered the traditional energy sector. As an analyst on Wall Street, your only job is to make correct calls which is defined as you recommended a stock or sector and it outperformed other stocks or the broader market, or it didn't. It's reasonably black and white. It's frankly not about whether the thought process and all these things were good or not at the end of the day. It is, did you make a good call or not make a good call? And it is that training that I think we need more of in this energy and climate discussion. It's not about advocacy. I am not advocating For fossil fuels, what I'm doing is applying analysis could be wrong. I've yet to get good pushback on why it's wrong, but it could be wrong on what is the outlook for these things and why do people use them and what are the basic economics? Um, Now, some people say, well, what about some of your current affiliations? Doesn't that make you biased towards fossil fuel companies? Honestly, it's the same perspective. Whatever you're involved with, it could be private equity, it could be a fund, it could be a corporation, whatever it is you still want that entity or those portfolio companies or whomever it is to outperform. And and so you're still trying to analyze what does the future look like? What does supply demand look like? What do economics look like? What does profitability look like? You're doing it as an analyst. You're not doing it as an advocate. I do advocate for pro-capitalism. I'm pro-capitalism, anti-socialism. I'm pro-pragmatism, I'm anti-ideology. So if I'm advocating for anything, it is that capitalism is unquestionably superior to socialism. Capitalism needs rules. It's unquestionably superior. It's the only thing I advocate for. I do not advocate for any specific fuel source. I try to bring analysis, and I think that is my strength. I can be wrong. Any buy side client that I had will tell you I made many wrong calls, and we will correct them if we've made mistakes. But again, I'm still looking for analytical pushback on my views. From the uh, right, we get the, hey, the new stuff is dumb. It's not energy dense. Uh, the intermittency is a huge problem. Fossil fuels, fossil fuels, fossil fuels are the answer going forward. And I don't agree with this either. I do not. Again, when you look at the increment of energy required for the developing world, it is massive. And I'm not sure if we can have enough crude oil development to meet that. Uh, certainly not in the time frames that are going to be needed. I'd also say Everyone, any country is always going to care about its domestic resource. Solar and wind are domestic resources. It it is CapEx versus OpEx. It's not an unreasonable trade-off to say, let's spend the CapEx up front and have very little OpEx or variable costs going forward. I think there's a lot of reasons why you would, as a country, want to use the new stuff, even if on some attributes even if on some attributes, it's inferior to fossil fuels. And I think this is where the pushback from, I'm going to call it the right in the US context, uh, I think is similarly off base. The the best pushback I've gotten is actually from someone I really only know through Twitter. It is a veteran energy analyst. Uh, I'll keep them anonymous because they wrote me privately, which I appreciate saying, you didn't define what you meant by climate alarmism, which I did write about in one of the notes. And I I think it was actually really good feedback because one of the things I try to do is not be loose about the language. I don't like terms like green versus brown, clean versus dirty. These are all poor descriptors for energy overall. Yet I use the term climate alarmism uh, without really defining it and what I meant by it. It is worthy of a separate post. uh, So I will accept that as a legitimate critique. I I wrote a post, I want to say about a year ago called Sticks and Stones, where I went through some of the you know, loose language and unfortunate language that people use. And and I do think this is one of these terms that I should better define what I mean by that. And I will do that in a future post. So oil demand is in the process of obliterating net zero ideology. And I know I showed this in the video uh, three weeks ago. It is, I'm not trying to pick on the IEA. There are a number of different organizations that came out with similar sort of oil demand, if it didn't peak in 2019, was going to peak soon. My issue with all these scenarios is you can always debate 2050. By that time, something can always have changed. But 2030, there is no chance, no chance, zero, we were ever going to have 75 million barrels a day plus or minus of oil demand. Things cannot change that fast. They can change eventually, but not that fast. And we're now on track for the anywhere from 105 to 110 million barrels a day of oil demand in 2030. That's not a scenario. That's not a net zero scenario. That's ideology. That is not analysis. And that's why you take offense to it. I have personally relied on IEA data for 30 years. This is not a critique of the IEA itself. Uh, and in fact, there are a lot of hardworking people there, and I am appreciative of all the analysis and work that they do. But this report specifically, perhaps spearheaded by the current leader. This is what morphed into advocacy from analysis, in my opinion. And that is what I take offense to, because it's leading to a whole bunch of bad policies and bad investment decisions. When you don't live in reality, that is not reality. And let's go through some numbers. So I've showed this before, but let me go through it again. The bars are population. On the left, US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. The lucky one billion. I am part of that lucky one billion living in the US. Billion of us, the bar on the right, the rest of the world, there's 7 billion people. The lucky 1 billion use 41 million barrels a day of oil demand. That works out to about 13 barrels per person. The rest of the world uses 59 million barrels a day. So they're currently in an absolute basis using more, but that only works out to three barrels per capita. And let's focus on these numbers, 41 with 13 and 59 with three. There's a lot of effort being made between electric vehicles and fuel economy standards to reduce that 41 in the rich countries. I think we can debate how successful that's going to be or the timeframe by which it'll be successful. But let's just say we can take a third out of that within a decade. And the 13 barrels per capita can go to 10. You're talking 10 million barrels a day of potential negative hit to demand. I actually don't think, I think it's gonna be flat or down a little bit, but let's just take the minus 10. Look at the rest of the world at 59 million barrels a day and three barrels per capita. Invariably, you'd argue, why can't they get to 10 barrels per capita? That works out to 60 to 180 million (laughs) barrels a day of oil demand. The numbers are laughable. It's a joke. Oil demand could grow by 120 million barrels a day. That is not a realistic forecast, which is why we need the new stuff. And so one of two things will happen. They're either not going to grow, they're not going to get out of poverty to the degree they should or deserve to, or it's going to take a really, really long time, 100 years. Or, and hopefully, and this is the optimistic case, we actually get the new technologies to ramp. We need the new technologies to ramp because the numbers are overwhelming. The equivalent of a Western lifestyle is three barrels per capita going to 10 barrels per capita. It's 120 million barrels a day of oil demand growth over... 50, 100 years, I don't think we're actually going to have that. This is not a call for 120 million barrels a day of oil demand growth. It is a recognition that trying to kill oil demand is really, really hard, and that you need the new stuff to ramp in some reasonable timeframe, or poor people are going to stay poor. It is about lifting people out of poverty. It is about moving up the economic ladder, and that is inevitable, and that is justice. That is social justice, that's economic justice, that's environmental justice, lifting people out of poverty. The numbers are not, it's not a close call. So you go back to that previous graph, we were never gonna have 75. I'm trying to stay positive here. We need all forms of energy. The idea that we're not going to be using a whole bunch of oil is a complete pipe dream. It's a fantasy. So a quick reminder. When you look at a barrel of crude oil, now this is just crude oil, I usually talk in liquids. sorry, I probably should have used the liquids graph here. Gasoline is about one-third of crude oil demand, okay? The other two-thirds are diesel, gas oil, residual fuel oil, jet, kerosene, and naphtha. And these are all petrochemicals, airplanes, some power generation, asphalt, and then trucking, okay? There is some signs that EVs are making share, that auto companies are going to build new EVs. And we can debate hockey sticks versus non hockey sticks. And is there enough critical minerals and copper? But EVs are going to take some share. And it's a good thing. Um, but it's, you're talking about a third of the barrel here. And if you looked at liquids overall, it's about a quarter of the barrel. There's still a whole bunch of oil demand we're not even accounting for, never mind that previous graph of moving from three barrels per capita to a higher number. Um, people. This is not a close call. It's not not like, give me the analytical pushback to any of this, please. I absolutely accept it. I want the companies and investments I'm associated with to outperform. So I need the analytical pushback, and I'm not getting it. Let's go through some country examples. Uh, I want to start with Thailand, a population of 72 million people. And this was this was actually a tiger cub. I, hopefully, these terms are still okay to use. But we used to call them the Asian tigers uh, early in my career. And again, if they're not okay to use those terms, I apologize. But it's what we called them back in the the nineties. But but here you can see um, Thailand. So India and Africa are currently at one point four and one point two barrels per capita of oil demand. And this is a much smaller country, Thailand. When they were at 1.6 barrels per capita in 1987, I'm pretty sure people can see my cursor. Um, That's right here. Uh, Here is their sort of economic miracle. Moving up the income ladder, uh, they got to uh, over four and a half barrels per capita, almost five. Uh, And this peak is the Asian financial crisis. And of course, oil demand went from 200,000 barrels a day. It tripled. Uh, So small country, oil demand triples. We go through the Asian financial crisis and uh, it looked like, Thailand oil demand had stagnated a bit till it started making new highs. And now we've got, here we had a great financial crisis, and here we have the COVID period. But Thailand's on that march up. Um, So even when it looked like it had paused and plateaued for a little bit, they then went on to make new highs. They're now at six barrels per capita. They're moving towards Western world standards. And over this period from 1987 to current, demand is up sixfold, 6x in Thailand, remarkable number. Let's show another example: South Korea. This was again what we called an original Asia tiger. Fifty-two million uh, people in the country. This, the, if you just start in 1970 when they were at 1.8 barrels per capita, they've actually this is one of the few places that I checked. This numbers two or three times. I didn't believe it, but South Korea is one of the few places to achieve U.S. and Canadian-like uh, oil demand per capita type numbers. They obviously have a large refining industry, petrochemical industry. They have a large auto industry, and these are probably the reasons why. But oil oil demand's up 18-fold. Um, it's a smaller country, so it's you know only 2.7, 2.8 million barrels a day, but massive growth. And same issues. Asian financial crisis, you see a hit. You're then stagnating for a bit before you start making new highs. These numbers are overwhelming as countries economically develop. They, they lift people out of poverty. They use a heck of a lot more energy, of which oil is a big chunk of it. And I wanna now turn to the 1.4 billion people club, which starts with China. And again, I know people especially know this story, it's the most recent one, uh, but from when they joined the WTO, uh, oil demand per capita was 1.4, kind of exactly where India is today. And we've seen a tripling uh, to you know 3.9 barrels per capita, Uh, You've seen oil demand triple from 5 million barrels a day to over 15, and these numbers look like they're going to continue to rise, even as China itself is probably at peak population and perhaps at peak industrialization. Uh, We are uh, on track and we've achieved massive growth. And this is obviously, excuse me, you're kind of a most close example for what could be experienced in India and Africa. And so let's just look at what the potential is for these two areas. Uh, India, 5.3 million barrels a day, far left, Africa, just over four million barrels a day. And they're at you know 1.4, 1.2 barrels per capita. If they get to three, if they get to four, if they get to five, you're talking anywhere from you know six to 13 million barrels a day of demand growth for each area. Uh, and again, Western world standards are going to be—I'm going to call them ten, even though the U.S. and Canada are at twenty and South Korea is at twenty. I'm just going to say ten is a reasonable number. To get. So, like, I, I don't actually think they're going to get to these kind of numbers. I think new technologies are going to develop. I think there's a lot of reasons to not get to these kind of numbers, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but it just speaks to how overwhelming these numbers are, and that that may not turn out to be true in 2026. Or 2028, 20, you can have a recession, you can flatline for a little bit as we've seen with coal. But those long-term numbers, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, they are overwhelming in one direction. You better, better hope, you better hope the new stuff really does work out. So I promised I'd come back to the pushback and again, I'm it from the US right that somehow we don't need the new stuff or it's dumb or it's low density or it's intermittent or what have you. And to me, and I think it's a little bit of a missed opportunity from those most passionate about climate and the environment, is to really understand the geopolitical implications. And uh, People always talk about geopolitics as a reason for why we should care about oil and gas. And to me, that's why we should care about American and Canadian oil and gas for sure. But on a global basis, if you're India and you look at China's path, this is net oil imports, crude supply versus crude demand, those are liquids numbers actually, China was sort of a neutral to a modest oil exporter. Here's 2001 when they joined the WTO, and from sort of a slight oil import to the largest oil import in the world, over 10 million barrels a day net oil imports from China. And look at what one of its key rivals has now done. This is the US in the dark line, US with Canada, the light line. Thanks to the shale revolution overwhelmingly, thanks as well to some oil sands growth, US plus Canada, the 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 net balance is one of neutrality. There's imports and exports for a variety of technical reasons, but your net balance is significantly better. If you're India, you are not going to want to follow in this path. Even if India today has the opportunity to import lower-priced barrels from Russia or Saudi wants to have a relationship, all these kinds of things, as a country, you're not going to want to be dependent on 10 million barrels a day of oil exports 20 years into the future where who knows where the U.S. is. Maybe shale will have rolled over by then. We don't know what the, you know, how much, you know, can oil sands grow by 10 million barrels a day? Probably not that much. And what you know, what is the geologic maturity of some of these places and or what oil price would be required to have India get to some massive oil import number. And so you're going to want, for geopolitical reasons, to try some of the new stuff. You're going to want to electrify a lot of stuff. You can have domestic sources of power generation. And nuclear is going to be part of that. Solar is going to be part of that. Wind is probably going to be part of that. Um, And natural gas is going to be part of it. You're going to need all of those forms of energy because you're not going to follow in this path. It is sustainability. It is a sustainability and geopolitical argument go together to to use some of the newer stuff because who, who would want to be dependent on some of these countries? Uh, and certainly I don't think India is going to want to be. Africa is a little different because they have a lot of domestic resources as a continent. And as I said, it's a question of whether those individual countries can sort of get along or not to have a net balance, but that's, that's probably for another, another video. And so let me end this video on a, on a personal note. And it's, it's probably a plea We try and make these personal notes a little more uh, funner and lighthearted, but this is going to be a plea to be an analyst. You can advocate for what you want to advocate for, but at least be an analyst while you're advocating. And please, 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 let's reject the purity tests. Energy and climate and all these topics, they need discussion. They need debate. They need analysis more than they need advocacy. Uh, And that is something that unfortunately is tough to come by these days. I am grateful to Substack. I'm grateful for all the subscribers. I'm grateful to Veriton for having that philosophy. Uh, It it, is about analysis first. It is the best thing about the Wall Street training. Wall Street's got its issues. One of the things it does not have an issue with is training people to analyze things. It, it, It is for monetary reasons, you are trying to outperform or underperform and make money and not lose money. That is the basis, but it's a very motivating kind of thing. I'm trying to make the right call based on analysis. I'm not trying to advocate for a view per se, other than we are pro-capitalism and anti-socialism. Thank you very much.